We are nearing the end of this very long discussion about the book of Isaiah. Isaiah only has 66 chapters, and we today are looking at Isaiah 60. So within the next six to seven, maybe eight weeks, we will be done. Um, but this, this one, this chapter, was really interesting as I was reading it. I was like, you know, so, so often in the book of Isaiah, as we've studied it, I've been able to show you from history where that particular chapter fit and to whom it was referring and, and what specific point in the, the history of the nation of Israel this particular thing was. And just as a, as a way to recap so that we're all on the same page, I'll just give you a real short recap here. Isaiah is writing prior to the time of the exile. He literally wrote the book 210 years before the exile. Um, and many times his prophecy was talking to the people who were living through the exile. He was giving them hope and encouragement and telling them about what God was going to do in and through them in the coming days if they would just hold on. So now we come to Isaiah chapter 60. And as I begin to read it, I'm saying, okay, Lord, where in the history of Israel does this fit? And I couldn't find it. And as I studied and read others' words who have studied this, I discovered that no one can find a place in, Isaiah, in Israel's history where these words fit. And it is the general consensus of almost every scholar that, you, that has studied the book of Isaiah, this scholar included, that these words are prophetic and they are yet to come to be. So if you re read through Isaiah chapter 60 with that mindset and that understanding, then you will begin to see some correlation to another prophetic book in the Bible, Revelation. I'm going to read through this. This is 22 verses. I'm not going to go very slowly. I'm going to read rather quickly through it. And then we're just going to focus on a couple of verses. But I do want you to hear the whole thing to get the sense that this is a prophetic utterance to these people who have been beaten down. They have lost their home. They have lost their place of worship. They have lost their community. They are under someone else's watch, care, and thumb. And they don't have the freedom to go home. They are stuck where they're at. And they are almost despondent in some cases. We do know from history that there is a remnant who has never let go of their faith and trust in God. But the community as a whole... They're pretty decimated at this point. And these words being spoken to them are, are words of encouragement about their future. Listen to these words. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you. And his glory will be seen upon you. And the nation shall come to your light. And the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. 
They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, and your heart shall be shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, and wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nabaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify, excuse me, beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar. There's silver and gold with them for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be opened continually. Day and night shall they not be shut. They shut that, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord. The Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, for a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, your God, am your Savior, excuse me, I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I'll bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down nor your moon withdraw itself for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended and your people shall all be righteous and they shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. These are powerful, glorious, fun words to hear. A wonderful promise that not a single one of them ever lived to see the end result. Not a single one of them was a hope that they held on to. Let's look what reality was. Turn back to the book of Ezra. For those of you who aren't familiar, open your table of contents because I can't tell you how to get there. 
It's after Chronicles. First, second Chronicles, then Ezra. It's before Psalms. So if you're in Psalms, turn to the left. If you're in Chronicles, turn to the right. Turn to chapter 1 of Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, he was the king that was over them during their time of exile. Okay? The word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to the real the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts and with costly wares. And besides all that was freely offered. And besides all that was freely offered, King Cyrus the king had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods, excuse me, Cyrus the king had brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, thousand basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 400 ton bowls of silver, 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Now, let's recap this. In the time of the exile, Nebuchadnezzar comes and he defeats Jerusalem and he takes the people of of Judah out of Jerusalem and into his own land. And he brings other people in and settles them into Jerusalem. And not only does he do that, but he takes all the, the, the valuable possessions of the temple and he takes them with him and puts them in the house of his own God. So they've lost their whole livelihood. They've lost their place of worship. They've lost everything. Now... 70 plus years later, God puts it on the heart of the current king and he says, you are to go, I mean, allow my people to go back and rebuild the place of worship. And I want you to return absolutely every single gold and silver vessel that you stole and bronze vessel that you stole. I want them all back. And so he does it. And there's an accounting done so that we have exactly the numbers so that they know that every single thing that was stolen was brought back and given back to the people of God to put back into the house of God once they built it. That's a pretty powerful God. Not only did he protect what was his, his people and his physical possessions, but when the time was ripe and his perfect timing was, was, was accomplished, all of a sudden God convinces this foreign king who has no obligation to honor God to do these things, including giving back all the gold and silver that was stolen over 75 years earlier. So, 
they go. Now, we're not going to read through chapter 2, because that's really boring. It's a bunch of numbers. Talking about people who came and blah, blah, blah. But look at chapter 3. When the seventh month came, see, they all moved back, right? Then the seventh month came, and this was around the time of September. We're not quite sure exactly the time frame, because their calendar is different from ours. But sometime in August, September time frame, the children of Israel were in the towns. The people gathered as one person in Jerusalem. And then arose Joshua, the son of Jozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel in order to burn offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So what's happening here is all of the people from, from, from the Babylonian exile make their way across, they come and they settle back into their homes, they start getting their life back in order, but at a certain point, they all gather together. We're going to see what that certain point was, but there was a specific reason why they gathered at that time. And when they gather together, their purpose is to worship. But in order to worship, they have to have an altar. And according to God's word, the altar has to be done in a certain way. It has to be an acceptable altar. It has to be acceptable sacrifices. You don't just offer anything to God willy-nilly. And so all of this happens. Verse 3, they set the altar in its place. For fear was on them because of the people of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it in the, on it to the Lord. What does that mean? There was fear on them because of the people of the lands. You see, they were now the foreigners in their own home. And these people who had been living there for 70 plus years considered it their land and their home. And now the king has declared that these other people get to come back and take our stuff and set up their own God? What? And so there's under a lot, they're under a lot of cultural pressure. And a lot of, there's a lot of stigma about them. People look at them and as they walk by. Because they're taking away what these people had. But in, 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 a, in, in an attempt to honor God, even though they're afraid of the people that are in the land, they offer their burnt offerings to the Lord, as it is written. And then they offer their, the, the, board, the, burnt morning, the burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept, here it is, they kept the Feast of Booths, the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, which we know happens sometime in the fall, August, September time frame. They kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings of the new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings from everyone who made free will offerings to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord wasn't yet laid. So they had begun the worship even before they began the building. So then they gave the money to the masons and carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the, uh, to the sea to Joppa according to the grant they had from the saint Cyrus, the king of Persia. So the process is now beginning. They're going to build the temple. Now the second year, after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the king of Sheal, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests, the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. And they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Yeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen of the house of God along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites and their sons and brothers. So the work of the day-to-day work in the temple is starting even though there's not yet a temple. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, 
The priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of, of, of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people couldn't distinguish the sound of the joyful sound shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. And then more problems come up because the people of the land don't like the fact that they're getting successful. And then finally, after all is said and done, the temple is finally finished and life comes back. And then eventually we read in Nehemiah that they build the wall around Jerusalem and they're back to normal. Everything's good. So where does Isaiah chapter 60 come in? Because obviously it didn't happen then. And we know from our looking back, it still didn't happen. It comes at the time of the Messiah, at the end. Some scholars say it's the millennial reign of Jesus, or the Messiah. But I want to focus on these first couple of verses, first three verses in chapter 60. I arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and the thick darkness the people's but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Let's break this down before we start applying any of this to them or to us. Arise. Who's the command for? Is the prophet asking the Lord to arise or is the prophet asking his hearers to arise? His hearers. So the words are, you who are listening to me, up, shine. What? Arise and shine? For your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. How in the world can they shine if they're enveloped in darkness? Where is this command appropriate? I'm going to give you a chance just to mull on that for just a second. I can't take a long time, please. Think about this. Where, where in the scriptures do you see anything similar to this? First John. First John, tell me what you're talking. Okay. When Moses was in the presence of the Lord, his, okay. face, his face shined. Okay. And then Paul alluded to kind of both of those things because the Moses shining faded. As he was no longer in the presence of God, the shining would fade away. He'd have to go back in. I always picture that as kind of like a nuclear thing. Like he walks into a nuclear reactor and goes, and then he comes out glowing. And everybody's like, ah! Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? But what, what Jesse just alluded to was the fact that the Holy Spirit of God is present in our lives, coming from within us. 
But when Isaiah was writing, that wasn't how God related with his people. God didn't inhabit his people with his holy presence. They came to him into his presence. But it's talking here that there's going to come a time in the nation of Israel's time where God, the glory of God is going to rise on them and the darkness that is covering the earth and the thick darkness that's covering the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. So the people around them who are in darkness, thick darkness it says, are going to see a light. And that light is going to be the glory of God shining or reflecting off of, if you will, the people of God. And the nations shall come to your light like filthy stinking bugs that they are. No, I didn't say it. That's not what it says here. And the kings to the brightness of your rising. So the promise that the prophet is making to the people of Israel who are in this despondent case right now, they are in devastation, they're in exile, they've lost absolutely everything. The story of Ezra hasn't even started yet. But there's this promise that there's going to come a time, thus says the Lord, when you will be the light to the world of God's glory. Every single king from around the world will be drawn to you, bringing wealth and offerings to pour into the house of God, to bring up blessing upon blessing upon blessing, so that they can be blessed by the true God. There's going to come a time when God himself will be, as it says later on in this chapter, God himself will be the light. You'll no longer need a sun. You'll no longer need a moon. God's glory will shine and it will be what what everyone lives by and sees by. Now, we don't, there's no way to explain any of this. It's all conjecture if I try to go into that. But the, the reality is God has made certain specific promises that he is going to raise up at the end times his people so that they will then shine out the glory of God so that the people who are stuck in darkness will be able to be drawn to God finally for one last opportunity to make an to make a command uh, to make, it's not a command, to make uh, an appeal to God to cleanse them of their sins, to become right in His sight, and to enter into right relationship for all of eternity. Okay? When and how is that going to be? I don't know. But there was something interesting said this morning in one of our prayers. One of our sisters prayed, God, don't let us get distracted from our calling. We are here in the Two Rivers area because God, 40 years ago, Marlene and Beverly just shared with us, 40 years ago, God put it on the heart of one Christian man that there needed to be a church of the Nazarene here in Two Rivers. And that Christian man just happened to live next door and own this property. And he said, okay, God, I will give what I have. And when I talked with Roger a number of years back when I was visiting with him in his home in Idaho, we, I thanked him for his gift. And he began to weep. Because he was, he knew the struggles that our church had gone through with the physical plant for so many years. And he literally wept and he said, I am so sorry for all the pain that I've caused you. I'm sorry for all of the heartache I've caused you. I literally gave the best that I had. I found the best five acres that were on my property and I gave them to the church. And I know that it's not been the best that could have been for you, but it was the best I had to offer. And he was weeping. And I tried to console him and help him to understand that he followed the leading of the Lord. He gave exactly what God wanted him to give. And God had a purpose and a plan for all of that has happened over the course of the years of this history of this church. 
But the whole point is, our church is here because our job is to glorify God in such a way so that the people of the Two Rivers and Pleasant Valley community see our Father shining through or off of us, whichever way you want to interpret it, so that they can give glory to Him, so they can be drawn to Him. And so often, especially in the, I can only talk about the 14 years I've been here, So often in my 14 years here, there has been time and time and time again where the enemy has tried to dissuade us, to distract us because of the problems of the physical plant, the problems of not having enough money, the problems of not having enough people. I can remember when I first got here And I had to call an engineer because the insurance company said they weren't going to insure this property until we got an engineer to sign off and say the building was sound. And I called Vince Merlot, who was a Christian man, who was an engineer in town. And he came out, stood in our basement, and went, I'm not signing off on this. My recommendation, bulldoze it, start again. I began to weep. What are we going to do, God? We don't have that kind of money. Another time, the front corner of this building is sinking because an Iceland has melted and there's a void and its foundation has settled. So I find a resource in Anchorage and it works out of Canada and Anchorage and these people can come and spray foam down in the dirt underneath it, raise the building up up to 15 inches if necessary. One application, it's done and forever you'll never have another problem. Yay! Can you come on up? That'll be a thousand dollars just to come on up. How much do you expect it to cost? Well, we don't know until we come up, but I can tell you, it's probably, from what you're telling me, yeah, 70, 80, 90,000 dollars. That was 15, 14 years ago. I, I looked at him, I said, alright, over the phone I looked at him, I said, our church doesn't at that time, didn't even bring in 49,000 dollars a year, and you're asking me to raise 70 or 80,000 dollars for one application to fix one problem with the building? And again, I'm weeping. We have had time and time and time again through the 14 years that I've been here where something looks despondent and problem and I can't do it and it's not going to happen. Oh my God, what are we going to do? Jesus, please help us. And time and time and time and time again, the resources were made available to us and the fix came and the the issue was resolved. Thank you, Father. And I, I, I really believe that that's where we're at at this point. I was stoked when I heard my sister say, Father, do not let us get distracted from from the from what you called us to do. Because you see, God declared over us back in 2008 that he was going to raise this congregation up to be 150 fully devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our job was to prepare for that growth. And we have spent the last eight years now, nine years, developing, building, doing everything we had to do, getting our physical plan in place, putting together a good financial base for this. I mean, we were not in good financial shape when I first came here. And we are in solid shape. Literally, we've been paying our bills. We were in the black at the end of this fiscal year. But this is one more distraction. And I, I just have to trust. It's just like when when Ezra was was trying to build the temple, the people at the time of Ezra were trying to build the temple. They're trying to do the work that they're called to do. They've been given the resources that they needed. They're trying to do the work. And all around them, there's distractions trying to keep them from accomplishing that which God has purposed for them. And it's the same way time and time and time and time and time again. And the words that keep coming in my heart and in my mind are, Arise and shine, for your light has come The glory of the Lord 
has risen upon you. The darkness that covers the earth, the thick darkness that covers the people, the Lord is going to rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. The nations will come to your light, the kings to the brightness of your rising. God has declared that the people of this community are going to come to him. Where else do you think 150 people are going to come from? We're not going to have 160 babies, 130 babies in the next 10, 15 years. Not from me, they're not going to come. Okay? So that means that God's going to bring 150 people, or at least 130 people, and of those people, I can guarantee you most of them are not going to be solid, sanctified, spirit-led Christians. They're going to be babies that have dirty diapers and messy stuff and don't know how to act in public and don't even know what it means to pray. And our job is going to disciple them and to mentor them, to help them become fully devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what our job is and will be in the coming days. We've done it more than once, but we did for sure. And I'm in the process of doing it now with another person. So here's the, here's the deal, folks. Yeah, it looks bad right now. We need $8,000 in two weeks. It ain't possible. I don't have it. I got a thousand I could kick in. Ain't doing it. That's, that's my money. I have to have that to pay my bills. I could, but then I wouldn't pay my bills. I don't see that honors God. If any of you have $8,000 that you have nothing to do with, feel free. Give it to us. But I have a sense that that's not how God's going to work. I have a sense that God is going to arise and shine forth His glory, just like He did with that water tank, just like He did with this roof, just like He did with our front porch, just like He's done, just like He's done, just like He's done, just like He's done. For 40 years. Our job is to pray. Our job is to keep our focus on Him. Our job is to love Him. Our job is to shine forth the light that is within us so that the people around us have light to see. Because the enemy is doing everything the enemy can do to keep the people's eyes pointed down and in darkness. And so do not be discouraged as you walk out of here. If anything, be motivated. God, as I told you last week, is the same yesterday and today and forever. And this is God's house. And these are God's ministries. And this is God's purpose for this place being here. Not mine. So just trust him. If he chooses to close the doors, that's his business. It's not ours. It's his. I don't have any sense that he's asking me to leave. So I think that means there's going to be a place for me to preach this coming year. If it means we have to move to the community center instead of having this building, okay. If it means I have to do it out of my living room instead of this building, okay. Whatever God chooses, it's his business. Whatever he asks of us, we'll do. But the one thing that I really believe all of you are being called to do is get on your face. 
Every single day, get on your face before him and plead for his, his will to be done. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth in two rivers as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Lead us not into, and as we forgive those who have trespassed against us, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Yours is the glory. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's our job right now. Because you know what? If you look at it from the pragmatic standpoint, from the business standpoint, as we have to do from the board meetings, 20 people cannot continue to sustain a $72,000 budget. You just can't. It's not going to happen. Some of you are going to get sick and die. Some of you are going to lose your jobs. Some of you are going to retire and your income is going to drop. Some of you, God's going to call away. So we, 20 people, cannot continually, perpetually sustain a $72,000 budget. But if God brings in people who can, and little by little he begins to build up the giving base, then we will have no problems meeting our obligations. So you need to get on your face and pray. In the same way as if it was your house. God, the lights have to be kept on, the heat has to be kept on, the pastor has to be paid, we have to continue to provide water, we have to continue to mow the lawn, and all of these things take money, and we're giving faithfully all week and every month, so would you please bring other people who could help, please? It's a simple prayer. And it's not, oh God, how are we going to do this? It's in faith. Oh God, your place, your call, your kingdom, your job, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'll be your hands and feet, and whatever you ask of me, I'll do. And whatever I can't do, you'll bring somebody else alongside me to help it's how it works. It's how it's always worked. It's he's going to continue to do that work. We just have to trust him and believe him and rest. So, let's pray.